Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Hey guys, for whatever reason, SoundCloud, which is our podcast hosting service, was having an issue with Apple Podcasts last week. So the incredible episode with Matt Novenson has been getting about half or less the usual amount of plays. And I want to make sure that people get a chance to hear this. So I'm posting it again in the feed. If you already listened, it's the same episode. You don't need to listen again. Uh, But for those of you with Apple Podcast apps, this is the first time you're seeing it probably. So wanted to make sure you had it. Incredible conversation with him. Um, Here you go. Just a quick announcement that I will be at Theology Beer Camp in October, October 13th through 15th. You could come, you can get $50 off your registration with the code YHP. There's a link in the show notes to register. It's going to be me, Pete and Jared from Bible for Normal People, the New Evangelicals, a slew of other God-focused podcasts, as Trip calls them, God Pods. Of course, Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity, who is convening the event, as well as speakers like Diana Butler-Bass, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Aaron Simmons from the Kierkegaard episode, a whole bunch of people. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be a lot of beer, a lot of nerdery, and we get to maybe hang out a little bit in person. It's the first in-person event that I have done as a part of You Have Permission since starting this podcast two and a half years ago. So I'm stoked and uh, hope to see you guys there. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening.
Dr. Matthew, a.k.a. Matt Novenson, you're a senior lecturer in New Testament and Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. I first heard you on a fantastic episode you did uh, with Trip Fuller for his Homebrewed Christianity podcast. And I know that you guys were uh, colleagues there at the school while he was in Scotland for a couple of years. And so it's great to be able to get my own little crack at talking to you. Yeah, no, uh, it's a pleasure. When I was listening to you with Trip, and Josh will put a link to that episode in the show notes. So if people want to, we're not going to cover too much of the same ground, but it strikes me that you are a very fair dealer. Like you clearly enumerate possible views. You don't sort of disparage them. And then you will, if pressed, give your view and, and sort of, you know, argue for it. That quality is uh, obviously in short supply these days, especially, you know, just continued polarization and the social media algorithms, all this stuff that everybody is well aware of. Yeah. Uh, and I found it really refreshing. And I thought, oh, awesome. So I just want to have an episode where I get listener questions about the New Testament. So almost all these questions are from uh, patrons of this show that I fielded on the Facebook group. And I threw in a couple of my own. So here's the first one. We're just going to start with a real quick softball here. Uh, why does Paul hold such a high place in Christian thought, given that he was not a disciple and did not know Jesus during his lifetime? I think there's two main things I'd say. The first is, I mean, in his own first century context, I think what happens is Paul kind of takes what on the surface of it was a manifest weakness uh, in this respect and, and kind of makes it his greatest strength. There's no evidence that Paul ever met Jesus during Jesus's lifetime. So the only claim he has is that he had an ecstatic vision of the heavenly Jesus post-mortem. I mean, rhetorically, from, from one perspective, that's a, that's a liability because he doesn't have the obvious cachet that a student of Jesus like Peter had. But I mean, what he effectively does, and I think he had a degree of success with this, is saying, actually, you know, the way I knew Jesus is even more authoritative. And Paul makes that kind of claim about Jesus. He could say, you should listen to me precisely because I wasn't, you know, a workaday student of the man, but rather I've met the, the heavenly Christ. I'm going to be a little bit unfair here. It almost parallels Protestantism's sort of, that's too broad of a brush, but many, many strains of Protestantism, how we tend to actually put Paul above the life of Jesus, certainly the mm. ethical teachings and we focus more on sort of the theological realities, we think, that Paul enumerated, the sort of bedrock facts of the universe and our salvation. And we say that that's actually the stuff that really matters. Mm -hmm. What ultimately matters is whether or not you go to heaven and not hell. That matters way more than whether you give to your local food bank or, or whatever, yeah, whether yeah. you welcome the stranger because think about it, the stakes are infinite. And so it does kind of parallel. Now, I'm not blaming Paul for that. I don't I don't think yeah, that Paul yeah. conceived of salvation, heaven, and hell in that strict sense, the way that it has been used all of the four spiritual laws. But there is an interesting, if if slightly unfair, parallel. No, that's that's not too unfair. And there is this particular Protestant love affair with Paul in particular. The other the other Big thing I'll say more briefly in, in answer to the question is it's partly the reason Paul has such sway 
alongside Jesus in subsequent Christian tradition. It's an accident of the second century. So Marcion in the mid second century, who ends up getting ruled a, a, a heretic, he kind of made Paul the center of his Christian canon and his, his Christianity. So despite the fact that the majority church rejected Marcionism in a way, the fact that Marcion made such hay of, of Paul, it's a reason that Paul becomes so loud in the tradition subsequently. It's Marcion's revenge. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, that's, that's helpful. I want to go to Paul's vision of Jesus. So one of the things that I picked up on when I was reading more New Testament stuff was in Dale Martin's book, a couple of his books, but Biblical Truths, his, his last one where he sort of summarizes his, his life's work. The word pneuma, right? This is like, a, this is a Greek word that to hear Dale Martin say it, this is the, the stuff that Jesus's body is made of when Paul has a vision of the risen Christ. Am I right so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, tell us about pneuma, because this is really different than sort of the way we think about matter and energy and light and all of that in our current day. So the tricky thing about the word pneuma in Greek is that in most English translations of the Bible, it comes over as spirit. And that's because in the Latin, pneuma was spiritus. The trick is, I mean, all these translation questions are relative to, you know, how it actually sounds to people because language changes over time. Right. But to me, and I think to most of us, you know, early 21st century English speakers, the word spirit sounds precisely like something that's not stuff. It's not material. It's the opposite right? of material. Yeah. Yeah. You've got your body, but then you've got your spirit and that kind of basic dualistic understanding of the human person that most of us were raised with, at least as kids, you know, of kind of like, well, you have a body, but you have a soul. Your soul is, is like this special other thing that's not your body. Right. And so if that's how we are interpreting pneuma, non-material, panuma, I guess, I don't know if I say it right. Yeah, yeah. Pneuma's fine. <laughs> P-N-E-U-M-A, I believe is yeah. the spelling. If that's how we're reading it, then it's really sort of an in-between category. It is neither sort of the, the stuff of flesh and blood, nor is it immaterial. It's like a different kind of material that doesn't play by the same rules that our body's matter plays by, something like that. Yes, that, that's that's right. So the whole problem for us in our linguistic context is the word spirit suggests something else entirely. But in our English yeah. Bibles, we always read spirit wherever the Greek writer said pneuma. A classic case where a common translation, I think, kind of throws us off the scent. But if you have this understanding of pneuma informed a bit by ancient philosophy, like Martin and Caroline Johnson Hodge and Trolls Ingrid Peterson and others have argued, then it makes sense because it means it means a body kind of like we would even in colloquial English, we can call the stars heavenly bodies, knowing their material. And I mean, Paul actually does call the resurrected bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, heavenly bodies or celestial bodies. That is, they're still made of matter, but a kind of matter that we just don't have down here, a kind of matter that is fit for eternal life, that is fit for the life of God even. So it's that mortals have to get transformed into immortals. They still have bodies, but they have to be pneumatic bodies instead of fleshy bodies. So to connect this back to the first question then, why might Paul's vision of the risen Christ be actually more authoritative than the people who were hanging out with the 
flesh and blood, Jesus, well, it's kind of like if it's like knowing the ending. So like if, if a physicist today or like if somebody were to be able to demonstrate for sure that, you know, some multiverse theory and they have the kind of proof that maybe is impossible to have, we think. But and again, and this is not my world, but like someone goes, no, 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 guys, like really this is the sort of model of the multiverse and and I know it. Well, that would in a sense privilege whatever they think about X, Y, and Z over people operating on a single universe theory because it's sort of more ultimate. It's it's more metaphysically ultimate about all the things that are, that exist. And so does that kind of make sense of, of Paul's, maybe his own sense that I'm playing angel's advocate here for Paul. I'm not trying to like say you guys are full of shit or anything. I'm just saying I have seen the next, the next act of the play. That's where we're all headed yeah. uh, because of what Jesus did. That's where we're going. Yeah. He's claiming, and I think he absolutely thinks, I think he's quite certain that he has seen the risen Christ. He's claiming to kind of channel the power of the risen Jesus and, and, to have kind of proved it, uh, to say, this is my calling card. I mean, Paul has a reputation in Christian circles as kind of, as the Protestant apostle, the kind of polite, respectable rationalist. But there's a a good recent book by Jennifer Isle that's on how basically, if, if you were from Ephesus or Thessaloniki or something, and you met him in the ancient world, you would have thought that he was a diviner, that he had kind of demonstrations of divination and power. And so you'd say, oh, I'm interested in the God that this guy is able to channel and, and call wow. upon and so on. But that's that's kind of putting Pneuma to work in a way. Right. I want to drill down on one aspect here, which is the sort of temporal frame. So when we today read this stuff in Paul, we're doing something more like what I was giving in the multiverse example, where we assume that the authority about ultimate things is sort of to come like the, the, the fruit of that is to come at some indeterminate point in the future, perhaps when the new heavens and the new earth come, when all things are made new, you know, at some point Paul will be proven right. uh, And, and Jesus and everybody, you know, everybody else will be proven right and we'll see it. Of course, there are groups that always think the end is right around the corner that has never stopped since Paul. And uh, I am a spiritual abuse researcher because of that uh, enduring Mm. bullshit or a bullshit version of that enduring tradition within Christianity. (laughs) I should say that I, I I wouldn't call the, you know, sort of apocalyptic expectations of enslaved people bullshit. I would call premillennial dispensationalism bullshit (laughs) anyway. uh, So Paul though, and, and maybe this is a, a sub question to get to is like, how does this change throughout his writing career as time goes on and the dead don't rise. So like, but, but there's a real imminent expectation. It's sort of like, Oh, Numa is here doing things because it inhabited the Jesus of Nazareth. And that's very imminent. It's, it's not about the fundamental fabric of the universe, which will eventually be shown to be X, Y, or Z. It's like, Guys, shit is happening soon. The the power flowing through me, the pneuma flowing through me, it to a greater degree was animating is what Christ's body was made of. And this means 
that shit is going down now among us. Am I, am I getting that right? This is another thing that, I mean, even nowadays is quite controversial. Lots of debate in new Testament studies. I mean, when Paul's writing his letters in, in the fifties CE plus or minus, so, you know, 25 to 30 years after the death of Jesus. So he knows that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so I think it actually matters that Mm. for Paul, that he is from the generation of Jesus. So that even if years or decades have passed, it's in living memory. And that the idea that the kingdom of God finally will come within a generation is not at all impossible for him. And so with a substantial minority of scholars, I think Paul... He doesn't set a date. So in this respect, he's, you know, not like some uh, kind of end time folks, but I think he speaks straightforwardly as if he expects the Brucey of Jesus, the resurrection of all the righteous and the end of all things within his lifetime. And then, so that matters for lots of stuff he says, right? It's not, it's not the case that from his perspective, at least that he's doing the way we often read him in sort of polite Christian piety. Well, he's talking about the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Well, he's talking about he thinks he's living in the very last generation and that, uh, which is why significantly the authentic letters of Paul say nothing about Christian birth or child raising or anything like that. Again, some people say, Oh, it's just an accident. I think it's significant that that that's not a topic of conversation for him. So yeah, you're mentioning, you've mentioned twice now this, the authentic letters of Paul versus the contested letters of Paul or whatever the term would be the ones that, are traditionally ascribed to him, but that scholars are not necessarily in agreement on. So when I referenced earlier the the modulation of that apocalyptic expectation, the sort of turning down of that knob and the starting to address uh, what's it look like for a community to continue for multiple generations without the arrival of the end, you would place those letters as not written by the hand of, of actually Paul, but Paul's disciples uh, in the spirit of Paul or something like that. Yes, that's, that's right. So this too, like a lot of stuff is disputed among New Testament scholars, but there's a, at least a majority critical opinion that there's, you know, probably seven letters that almost everyone would say come from the man himself. And then there, well, we know there are letters falsely attributed to Paul. There's a number of them outside the New Testament that are falsely attributed to Paul that I don't, I know of no one who thinks those are authentic. A lot of the discussion of this issue is, I mean, understandably kind of, I think, apologetic, like trying, readers of the New Testament who tend to be mostly Christians trying to say, well, like the central idea can't be just so obviously mistaken. Uh, And so they'll point to things like, well, it doesn't exactly set, doesn't set a date. So in that respect, it's not falsifiable in the same way that, you know, the 2012 apocalypse or something was falsifiable. And that's all fair. And, and that's part of the reason that Christian, the Christian tradition has been able to sort of reinterpret and extend these things out, as is happening already in the canon. But yeah, my, my point looking at it, you know, especially as, as, a, as a historian, is to say, oh, I mean, if, but if you too quickly skip over this issue, then you're missing a lot of what made these people tick, that they really, they really thought that the kingdom of God was right there. Well, we want to skip over it because it's much more easy in terms of cognitive dissonance of somebody who's a Christian, right? Because you don't want to be, it's just very hard. Like we'll probably get to this idea of Jesus as a potentially failed apocalyptic 
profit or something like that is a really that's been for me a very disconcerting thought. Mm-hmm. Like if he was in some sense wrong about that, then what else was he wrong about? Am I right to be sort of taking the Eucharist <laughs> to yeah, be yeah. taking his body and blood? Like how is this a is this a house of cards kind of a thing? And so once you even glimpse that thought, uh, the amount of internal anxiety, it can it can rocket mm-hmm. ratchet up real fast. And so there is a very strong internal sort of logic to scraping past the uh, apocalyptic expectations there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So which leads to another uh, really good question from a listener that I, I might have thought to put in earlier to sort of set the, the scene. So let's just back up to Second Temple period Judaism, which is the type of Judaism that Jesus grows up in, that Paul grows up in. And this uh, listener is asking sort of what were the the sort of philosophical, theological, physical positions, possible views that people had about the upcoming end or the some sort of eschatological apocalyptic vision that would in some sense relate to this idea of bodily resurrection. That's sort of like, what are the various options in the water, so to speak, yeah. for people in that time that then maybe Jesus had a view about, Paul expresses his view, other early Christians have these views. What's kind of going, what are the options at that time? Yeah, uh, we don't know what lots of just, you know, normal people thought most of our evidence is just is literary we have to look at texts of of different kinds apocalypses narratives you know like in the gospels some letters some prayers or poetry things like that i mean ancient jews had different ideas about the end of things and the human future that were distinctive in some ways from what other people's thought but they're also part of like the great ancient mediterranean culture so there's lots of ideas in the in Second Temple Jewish literature, in some books of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible or its translation in Greek, there's a lot of Second Temple Jewish books that are known to us in the Apocrypha of Christian Bibles, but they were Jewish texts, not Christian ones, because they're from before the time of right. Jesus and the Apostles, lots of which have really interesting uh, eschatologies going on. So kind of like Greeks and Romans and Egyptians and others, ancient Jews had a, a range of ideas which included things like what we kind of think of as a platonic idea that that you have a soul inside a body, but after death, the soul can escape and it goes to some blessed place, heaven or paradise or something like that. And that's what we're destined for. There are more materialist accounts further back in the Hebrew Bible. And this idea continues right on in in some circles in the second temple period. You know, the, the righteous dead are described as just going to rest with the ancestors. And I mean, so that idea uh, endures in, in the second, late Second Temple, in the apocalypses, you begin to get scenes of, of a day of judgment. Hmm. A day of judgment or a day of the Lord occurs as a, as a phrase, it's a literary motif in some of the later Hebrew prophets. But then in the apocalypses of the sec- late Second Temple, the Hellenistic and Roman periods, you get right, elaborate scenes of this. And that is kind of the, that's the context for a lot of New Testament stuff. So there's a proper apocalypse in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, but some sayings of Jesus, like in Mark 13, almost sound like excerpts from an apocalypse. Some uh, passages in Paul, like 1 Corinthians 15, sound as if they could be excerpted from an apocalypse. So you might think 
that you would go peacefully to sleep with the ancestors. You might think your soul would escape your body, or you might think, and this is a more common view in the late second temple, that bodies will be restored. And this is the idea of resurrection, which it's a famous problem. It's, uh, you know, there's not a lot of talk about resurrection at all in the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament, but you get it in the book of Daniel expressly in the context of persecution and martyrdom. And then you get it in the books of Maccabees, second Maccabees, especially where there are these, you know, really grim stories of martyrs, Jewish martyrs who are martyred by the Seleucid Greek empire. And resurrection, like getting your body back, is a kind of cosmic act of justice. Like if, if it mm. was cruelly and right unjustly snatched away from you, yeah. then for God to win in the end, he, he can't just let your soul be at peace. He has to yeah. actually restore to you what was unjustly taken. It makes me think of African-American religion during slavery, right? Like it's it shares a lot of those sort of factors and it shares a very, a very similar cosmic moral reasoning. Right. Yeah, like, that's, that's, that's right. I got, I get, there's something else after this. Cause this is some bullshit right here, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if God's good, then this, this, I mean, and I think that that's true. I mean, I agree. If God is really good and you are just born and die a slave, then there better be something else. Like that's, that's a pretty bad life. Yeah, it is in this respect in a, in a very significant way, like some black liberation theology about it's in the context of injustice. And I mean, in particular, kind of imperial violence. Yeah, that's the that's the context where this idea of the resurrection of bodies of having what is rightly yours and was taken away. It's in the second century B.C. context of uh, Jewish persecutions by the Seleucids. Can I pop in on a just a real quick psychological thing here? I wonder what you think about it. It's interesting to think about the context like we've been talking about, sort of the context of imperial injustice, martyrdom, sort of state violence as a breeding ground for essentially what are philosophical arguments that mm. can then be measured and sort of taken on their own merits. Like a personal view that I have philosophically, and I have never been oppressed by state violence, is that... There are some lives of creatures, specifically humans, but I'm sure animals as well, that on the surface, on all things considered, have not been worth living. They have been the recipient of inordinate suffering, and it would have been better, all things equal, if they had never been born, had not existed. Now, this is, I'm not making like a pro, I'm not making an abortion rights argument here. I'm just saying, like, you know, Annie Dillard in her book for the time being talks about these cases of it's basically a problem of evil book <laughs> and it's, you know, or part of it. And, you know, these kids who are bitten by the wrong kind of mosquito, they just like get they just blow up and have pain and die seven days later. You know, like that's not worth having happened. It would have been better if that woman had not become pregnant in the first place. And so that is an argument that I can talk about in philosophical terms and say, if God is just, if there is a just God, then there is something else to compensate for that experience. Assuming God has some level of control over what exists now and what exists later, then God would have to, if God is just, do something about that. There would need to be something else in which that 
organism, that creature gets to, in some sense, take part. It gets very hard when you start trying to describe what that might look like. Uh, but that necessarily be beyond my pay grade. What's interesting here is to say, okay, so that type of argument, I didn't make it up, right? I'm drawing on people who were being killed, mm. who had these moral intuitions of like, wait a minute, like they're sort of waking up to some reality because of their experience that then gets expressed in poetry. It gets expressed in more sort of straightforward argumentation, we might say. So again, the Jews in exile or coming back from Babylon or being martyred by the Greek empire or uh, black slaves in America being owned and killed uh, by white slave owners, often forcing them to become Christians. And like, that is just so interesting to me that we could we could identify a sort of psychological, an experience of life in which certain thoughts would would naturally come out, but then those can be sort of excerpted and and argued for their at their own on their own merits. Mm. I don't know exactly what is so interesting to me about that, but it feels like there's something quite profound somewhere in that mix of like sort of the the ground of these transcendent and sort of beautiful and sticky and thorny claims and arguments, mm. the stuff, the stuff that nerds like us geek out on comes out of this like bloody clay of yeah. human experience. And I'm just kind of, I don't know. I'm just kind of fascinated by it. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this would be a marquee example where I sometimes think of as a kind of, it's a speculative theological question, right? What exactly mm -hmm. is the resurrection like? But in the early texts about it, many of them, it's, it, it, it is kind of achingly ethical and as existential. And that's part of, I mean, maybe I shouldn't think of it as just a speculative issue, because even in later tradition, this, the ethical edge remains in, in, in some instances, because the question becomes, and it's actually a really interesting one, right? If even amongst ancient Jews and Christians and others who entertain the idea of resurrection, what exactly that is supposed to be like becomes a problem and not just a speculative problem, but right. Like what, if the whole point is that God and the good have to win in the end, then what would be that optimally good state of affairs? And, you know, the, the, some of the rhetoric like in second Maccabees is, is about, well, I, you, it's only just if one gets back the same body parts that were taken. Interesting. So early kind of reasoning about this. Yeah. Yeah. Then the problem, if you think of resurrection that way, as kind of like the reclamation of the body you had, well, then it raises other problems because the body you had was one that even absent your torture would have died eventually anyway. So this is where the pneuma thing is really fucking powerful. If you believe that there is another type of matter that's incorruptible, it's like this whole conversation about the resurrection of the body which ultimately is not a medical question, but an ethical question. It is a, it's sort of like, is the universe moral? Is God good? And then you go, well, yes, God is good because after all this injustice, we get another go round yeah. that where God sort of makes it up to us. And then you go, okay, but the only kind of bodies we know have these various problems, the mosquito bite little baby, that baby doesn't want that body back. 
I mean, I guess maybe minus the mosquito bite, the other part of the same book for the time being by Annie Dillard, she goes through this like the first chapter or whatever. It's just this brutal read through an encyclopedia of cha- child birth defects and Ooh. abnormalities with photos and everything. And it's like those kids don't want those bodies back. Like that's not what we're dealing with. Enter a body made of pneuma. Mm-hmm. It solves the problem, right? Yeah. Well, I think for Paul, that's right. I mean, but the problem is some there's a disagreement about. I mean, some ancients disagreed about this. First, Jesus is the first fruits, and then we all get the same thing later, right? Yeah. So for Paul, yeah, whatever the the kind of bodies the righteous have will have the same kind Christ has, which is to yeah. say, humanic and heavenly, and so on. There's debate even in uh, well, some of the early ecclesiastical writers who are all glossing. Paul in the Gospels and uh, trying to write. So Origen in the third century, he takes a view that I think is kind of close to Paul's. He says that the resurrection, you know, to be worthy of God needs to make humans actually transcendent. They're still humans, but they're in a way, there's something more. There's something like stars. So there's a, mm. the details of this are fuzzy, but there are reports that said that one region that Origen was posthumously judged a heretic was because he said that the resurrection bodies would be spherical, shaped like spheres. Uh, And this is probably related, (laughs) if true, it's related to his idea that they would be star-like. But then for other early Christians, they said, yeah, but that's not resurrection enough because that's not enough like ourselves, right? And that's why he's a heretic? This is cited in some sources about why Origen was judged to have gone astray. Interesting. Wow. Tertullian, on the other hand, Tertullian argues vigorously for the resurrection of flesh. It has to be flesh. And, and which I think is there, he has to really twist himself in knots to say that Paul would agree with him. But, but the point is Tertullian, he, he wants those bodies to be familiar, to be the bodies that we know. And for him, that would be just right. It's just different in it's different intuitions, though. Essentially, yeah. what it sounds like to me here is that people have a moral intuition and that they, they then say, well, what would the resurrection have to look like to match my moral intuition? Someone else has a different moral intuition. What would the resurrection need to look like to match that intuition? I don't know. Is there a better way of going about it than that? It's not like we can. It's not like we have a whole lot of evidence to pull from about yeah. what. The resurrection would be like, except the body of Jesus. We're sliding into sort of like possible views of the resurrection, which is where we're, we're heading here. Do we know if the disciples who like saw the resurrected Christ, who had resurrection experiences, do we know if they agreed with Paul's description of the resurrected Christ? Is there reason to think that Jesus would have appeared differently in those times. It seems like no, as far as I can imagine, but I'm just kind of spitballing. Right. So basically, no, we don't know what the first disciples of Jesus said they saw because we don't have records directly from them. So Paul is the earliest, but as we discussed, you know, Paul hadn't been an acquaintance of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. And then we have the Gospels, which are accounts of the life of Jesus, but they're all written after Paul, and they're, they yeah. have the names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John attached to them, and there are others outside the canon as well. But if you read the gospel text itself, they're all anonymous. They don't say who they're by. 
you know, a generation or two after the fact, gathering sources and, and writing these accounts. And so they tell stories of what they say the apostles saw. Yeah, but 40, don't year, know what, 40 plus years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't know what what those people themselves would have said, you know, if you had, if you somehow had testimony directly from Mary who saw Jesus first right. or from Peter right. and the beloved disciple, well, well, we just don't know. So I think if you kind of, if you zoom out and generalize, you can say, yeah, yeah, those are kind of similar-ish. And Paul, I mean, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says in that context, which is different from Galatians, he'll say that I saw Christ like and after all these other apostles saw Christ, which seems Mm -hmm. to, right? He says, so first Peter saw him and the 12 saw him and then a whole bunch of people saw him and then I saw him. And and he doesn't sort of distinguish between the, the kinds of, appearances. So that would be a that would be an argument that the kind of experiences they had were like to one another. If you go off right off the, the literary text themselves and you zoom in, sometimes I think they seem quite jarring. Uh, Luke has a scene of Jesus eating post-resurrection. And I think this is a really interesting question actually. Right? Would resurrected people eat or not? Mm-hmm. I think Paul would say no. I even wonder if but, Jesus would say no. They don't. They don't marry. They're not given in marriage. The the version of Jesus we have in in that particular gospel. That's right. Yeah, but Luke Luke has Jesus eat, and Luke also has Jesus say, "Look at me." You can tell that it's me, and you can tell Luke has him say, "If you read an English Bible, it'll say you can see I'm not a ghost." Yeah, Luke but, has Jesus say, "Look at me. I'm not a sphere." Yeah, yeah, that's right. Rebutting origin, but <laughs> he but, is a heretic okay sorry go ahead <laughs> but in greek this is where right and so he says i you can look at me you can see i'm not a pneuma oh geez right which elsewhere in english bibles is usually translated spirit but in a lot of english bibles there it's translated ghost he's saying i'm not a ghost i'm real so that's a case where i think it's hard to harmonize luke and paul i think yeah. actually maybe paul is more in an like an origins direction and luke yeah. is more like tertullian's so that he wants to say not a pneuma, look at him, he's eating. I mean, it sure sounds like, so if the author of Luke is has Paul, uh, certainly knows basically what Paul thought at that point, he would have known the Pauline school of thought. So isn't the simplest explanation that this is a, this is the text arguing with itself about the the nature of the resurrection? That's one quite plausible reading of Luke is he knows a Pauline kind of version of what resurrection is, and he thinks it's a bit too not continuous enough, not fleshly enough, right? Kind of like Sertullian and Origin, respectively. If you'd like to get more episodes of this podcast, as well as longer uncut versions of episodes like today, you can join the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. It's five bucks a month. And it also includes access to the patron only Facebook group. So you end up with at least two additional episodes per month, longer uncut versions of the full episodes and the community on Facebook. Again, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. All right, back to the episode. So I want to say one thing. We're talking a lot about the text arguing with itself, sort of going back and forth. If you are raised with a biblical inerrancy type of a view that the Bible does not contradict itself, it is univocal, and it presents a unified account 
true account of the world, then this stuff is very anxiety provoking. Even as someone myself who left behind inerrancy, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, it still causes some anxiety to, to talk about these tensions within the text. But of course, you can be a Christian and wrestle with these tensions. And so that's just to say, right now we're going to talk about possible ways that people today, based on what we know from the New Testament, can understand what we, you could talk about either way, what they've believed then about the resurrection or what people believe now. I'm open to all of that. But, you know, there are different ways of conceiving of the resurrection and saying, I uh, confess the risen Christ or taking the Eucharist and saying, I am taking Christ's body and his blood, which is in some sense related to the resurrection in a mysterious way. So I just want to say that because I, and I waited till, you know, an hour in <laughs> to sort of calm, calm people's nerves. Most people who listen to this show, they know what they're in for. But I mean, do you take that point? Any, any disagreements there? Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I would agree with that. One can be a Christian. In fact, I mean, lots of, maybe most Christians, most of the time are like puzzling out. Right. Uh, the, the different things they read uh, in scripture and squaring those with other beliefs they hold as modern people for other reasons. And right. that's, I mean, that's the norm, not the exception, I, th I, uh, I think. And it's lots of Christian traditions and spaces have kind of long had a kind of capacious room for teasing that out. Some yeah. don't. And that's especially where, you know, it can be really psychologically troubling, but there's, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the Christian tradition is a huge tent and there's, uh, well, like the origin and Tertullian examples, uh, you know, there've been, people have been puzzling these things for centuries and many of the, the different options are already here and there scattered about in the canonical texts. And those more sort of high control or or high uniformity religious environments, yes, they exist. Uh, most people listening are products of them. And uh, I, for one, am going to likely have an entire career thanks to those environments. So uh, I guess mixed a little bit of gratitude in with that, uh, with, the, with the darkness. So possible understandings of the resurrection. There's a lot of talk, like you see it in statements of belief from like conservative colleges and other organizations like the we and churches, we confess the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is like a big phrase, like in American churches, it's supposed to sort of symbolize that we're not liberal mainliners. So that's like one modifier bodily. What are these options, Matt? What, what are sort of different ways people have understood this either originally or today or both? Paul and Luke, or Tertullian and Origen, they all believed in a bodily resurrection, but they had this other category within bodily that was pneumatic. Yeah. Yeah. And probably a lot of, I mean, here I'm going out on a limb, I don't know if I'm right about this, but I would suspect that some of the more conservative churches that are trying to plant a flag with the term bodily resurrection might not be comfortable with, a, with an Originist or even a Pauline like pneumatic body. Mm -hmm. uh, they affirm the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, but yeah. doesn't specify that it's a body of flesh, right? Yeah. So, I mean, likewise, some more, you know, liberal Protestants would only be comfortable talking about maybe the immortality of the soul or something like that. And, right. and say, that's my reinterpretation of, of bodily resurrection. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's fine. There were ancient Christians who had that view too. But what's interesting is, or what I find especially interesting is this whole pneuma thing we were talking about is there was this other option in ancient Christianity that 
a lot of modern Christians just aren't even don't really, they don't know it as a category. And in fact, it was one of the primary categories. I mean, it's, it's the view in first Corinthians 15, arguably, which is the main passage on resurrection in the uh, Christian Bible. I kind of think of it like in today's language, I've, I've thought of this as like, and I don't like this term because it sounds really sci-fi, but like interdimensional, Hmm. the idea being that like, so, and I, this is again, listeners don't take this too literally, (laughs) but like, let's say physicists are right that there's like at least eight dimensions and we perceive of four of them with time being the fourth one. Like, okay, if that's true, if something like that is true and God is involved in that, obviously in some way, sort of by definition, and and maybe if sort of the fullness of creation, the fullness of the universe eventually incorporates those dimensions in a way that we don't have access to right now, what would it look like to us for somebody or something to sort of cross into our plane, but not be like magic. Like it's, it isn't magic. It's like, no, that, that it's like physics can describe it to some limited extent. And from our perspective, it's sort of like the, the 3d in a 2d world thought experiment yeah. kind of stuff, right? It, it looks like a circle, but it's actually a column or a cylinder, right? It looks to us like a a circle. If we're in 2d, one, this kind of, I guess, my kind of default way of thinking about it. If in, if in fact something happened with Jesus of Nazareth that reflects ultimate reality and was experienced by people as a resurrection, and if that is some part of our future, then maybe it is like that. Now, is that kind of like a Pneuma explanation or is that something else? Like, tell me. Yeah. No. Yes, that is very similar in the sense that, uh, I mean, the way Paul and Stoics in, in antiquity will talk about pneuma is it, it's, it's like you're talking about other dimensions. It's something that their contemporary science is describing, but it's at the limits of their knowledge, right? right. So it's the, they say like, okay, we have reason to believe relative to our whole system of science that such a thing exists, but it's, it's, it's not it's not normally accessible to, to us. And so it's people at the limits of their knowledge. So, yeah, I don't think it's a, it's not a ridiculous uh, analogy at all. And it is, I mean, what's very similar is to read first Corinthians 15 in a kind of, in its ancient context is it is, Paul is trading on the science Mm. that he knew. Right. Yeah. And yeah, this idea of pneuma, that there is, you know, something that's not like flesh or blood or water or earth or, you know, the, the things we normally uh, touch and taste and feel and so on. But we know it must be there because God is in heaven and the stars endure forever. And there has to be some kind of, right, they're thinking scientifically by their own lights. It's very similar to sort of the logic that Plato and Aristotle are using a couple hundred years before them that they probably weren't uh, familiar with in their time. Paul might have been right. Philo was, so Paul maybe yes. was. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, yeah. Pa- Paul is. I mean, Philo is a virtuoso. Philo is an actual philosopher. Paul right. knows philosophy. I mean, kind of like I, who'm not a philosopher, like no, you know. So yeah, I mean, Paul, yeah. Paul is a quite informed layman. And but what, yeah, when he this is what's helpful about reading Dale Martin or 
Carolyn Johnson Hodge or whomever on Pneuma is that they're attuned to the way those words, which when we read them in the context of a Bible, it just sounds like religious Christian Christianese. Right. right. But it's not. It, it, in, in the first century context, like he's using the philosophical and scientific language of the day. And it's intelligible that way. And if you were a first century reader, that's the kind of thing it would sound like. And that's the kind of thing that saying pneuma instead of spirit can jog uh, in your mind. And also drawing these kind of uh, analogies about contemporary science in relation to religion and theology, like multi-dimensions and so on. It is a similar kind of way of thinking. So, Yeah. I don't, I'm not a Christian because of the plausibility of my multi multi-dimensionary <laughs> being <laughs> hypothesis. Like I'm a Christian because it works. Like I, you know, I, I'm a Christian because when I, when I live within the Christian tradition, it works and it turns me into the kind of person I want to become. Mm-hmm. And it, and it is a sufficient grounding for the sort of moral and ethical direction of my life and, and the, the complex decisions I have to make as a human being. That's why I'm a Christian, not because uh, the evidence demands the verdict that I become a Christian. Yeah. But this stuff, the resurrection stuff is sticky. Speaking of sticky, one view that people sometimes offer today is sort of derisively referred to as like the revivified corpse model Mm. of the resurrection, which is maybe sort of the the most bodily, you know, in air quotes or, or whatever that like, I think that what Tertullian and Origen are arguing about when they say, well, is it spherical and perfect in a heavenly body because morally it needs to be? No. Or is it like, no, it has to be sufficiently like a human body because morally it needs to be. They're basically differing on their moral intuitions about like what the resurrection represents of God's love for people. And ultimately, they're both coming from a place of piety and they just have different philosophical I don't know the rest of their lives, but in that particular disagreement, right, those are moral intuitions. What people are saying today, I think, when they double down on bodily resurrection or whatever, they're, what they're trying to say is, I'm a real Christian, and, and by which they mean this really happened over and against a liberal Christianity that says this is a metaphor, that the resurrection is in some sense metaphorical. We're uncomfortable with these bodily miracles. We're uncomfortable with a kind of an anti-science view. And so we're only comfortable saying that Jesus resurrected in the minds of his followers or, you know, something to that effect. I think yeah. that's what's going on in in that distinction today, which is very different than the distinction of what's going on between Tertullian and Origen. Would you agree? Mostly yes, a little bit no. I mean, mostly yes, I think you're, Tertullian and Origen do not have, they do not stand in the same relation to each other that, you know, apologists and counter-apologists stand now. Like you're, I don't know. Yeah, like we're, what we're dealing with today is, it's just like a continuation of the Jefferson Bible. Essentially, it's just like modern science-informed people like myself, who, like myself, get really squeamish and squirmy around like miracles because we look around at the world and we don't see any miracles happening and people say, well, what about Africa? And we respond with psychological explanations for that, that seem more plausible to us than that miracles happen in Africa and not America. And so then we go, we look at the resurrection. We go, I don't know. It looks like kind of a weird miracle. 
I'm I'm uncomfortable with this stuff, but I I follow Jesus and it helps me. And so I like I identify myself as essentially in that kind of Tillich Schleiermacher liberal Protestantism strain where I'm just thoroughly uncomfortable with a miraculous Christ and a miraculous world while all these easily cured by miracle ills are happening all around me that don't go cured and don't go solved. And, and so I think that that's more what's at stake. I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't like being that way, but I don't know how else to be. So maybe let me rephrase this, Matt, how might I think about the resurrection? Give me some options. If I find myself in that position, along with options that are not so squeamish around miracles, because not not everybody agrees with me on that. Yeah. So first thing to say, the one thing I think I was going to say was, uh, I mean, it's not Tertullian in origin in relation to another, but Tertullian to say Marcion uh, is, I mean, they were excommunicating each other. There were, there was a lot, I mean, these were the high days of heresiology, heresy hunting. And that's not like the modern fundamentalist modernist disputes, but it is another example of like kind of, you know, Christians waging war against other Christians. Um, but I think you're quite right that the big difference is modernity in particular and accounts of science, especially downstream from modernity. And, and, and so, yes, you're, I, you're definitely onto something there. I mean, well, there is a venerable tradition of proper liberal Protestants, uh, Schleiermacher and Tillich and, and so on, of, of just sort of saying these things must be, or to use it, another uh, liberal Protestant example, so Bultmann, they must be demythologized. But there is a sort of kerygma within them that is still, you know, the, the truth that, that abides. And so someone like Bultmann is tremendously pious Christian in his own way, even if that's sort of unintelligible to someone who's a more literalist. Yeah. What's kerygma mean? Yeah, kerygma, the the proclamation, the preaching, the kind of the message at the core of the whole thing. So Boltman yeah. uh, had this idea that, well, kind of liking what you were just saying, he just said, as a modern person, I cannot believe in a literal sense, you know, these various yeah. stories or cosmological pictures in the Bible, right? But Boltman says, I don't therefore feel compelled to become an atheist or something like that. He said, because for him, the kerygma, the 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 core of the truth of the message was something that wasn't just part of the phenomena of a description of angels and demons or heaven above and hell below or you know things like that. Yeah, one way I think about that is just translation. Mm. So what we're always doing no matter what since we live now and they lived then is we are doing some form of translating their verbal expression of their experience with Jesus and of the early church and of the, whatever the Holy Spirit is, they are writing that in their language and we are translating it to our time. And in our time, we have differing sets of intuitions, just like people had different sets of intuitions in the, amongst the early church fathers and mothers. And so one possible translation is to go, well, yeah, that's their language. How would we put that into our language where we actually we don't think that these miraculous things happen but what but what would their what must their experience have been that they described it that way and can we affirm that as true and okay. just we and we are just translating it that's like my most generous description of liberal protestantism <laughs> is it's, it's 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 one legitimate option of translation from then to now yeah there's a very another 
really good book on resurrection is Dale Allison has a recent one called, I think it's just called The Resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing as a Christian in a broadly main uh, a sort of liberal Protestant tradition. But he kind of, he has a quarrel both with apologetic, like conservative accounts of resurrection that want to like say that you could prove it happened, you know, as if there were a yeah. CCTV footage of it or something like that. Right. How do you think about the resurrection? Are you, uh, are you, I know that academics and scholars get uncomfortable sometimes yeah. answering, answering personally, and you don't have to answer it and I'll cut it out if you don't want to. So, I mean, I'm close maybe to someone like Dale Allison, which I like to think is not too far from Paul or Origen or something like mm-hmm. I don't have a problem as a Christian layperson saying with a creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But with Paul, I tend to think, but what that body is, is something I haven't seen before. Yeah. And so for that reason, I'm, I I mean, and here again, like Allison, I really, I think anything I've ever seen that was kind of apologetic for demonstrating resurrection, I find really unhelpful because I think it's not the kind of thing that's signaled at by that language. Yeah. So in that respect, I mean, I suppose my position would look broadly liberal Protestant-ish, but not not to the extent that I want to say, I'm maybe not, I'm not enough of a, of a rationalist modernist to say, oh, it's metaphor. It has to be metaphor. That's the only kind of sense a word like that could mean if it's not empirically and literally true. I think there, I think the kinds of truth are far more than just two. I like that. Yeah. I, what I'm enjoying, what I, what I'm drawn to is just like controlling for my own time and place and, and instincts and intuitions. Mm. So I, I'm just, I would like saying, I don't, I just have a really hard time with miracles and sort of broadly speaking, the supernatural in the kind of, you know, way that we have separated that out as modern people. And I just, I don't really think that that stuff happens, Mm. but also I live in 2022 with the resources available to me. Now I have the type of personality I happen to have. I have the kind of brain I happen to have, you know, through genetics and environment and decisions. And so like, it's ultimately beyond my pay grade. I can sort of, Mm. uh, I can say that, but like, what's my confidence level that I, that I rightly and fully understand the question and the relevant information 25%. I mean, it's low. It's certainly under 50. I don't think I am more likely than not to be right about it. I can just say this is, and that helps and takes some of the pressure off of like, yeah. And if I lived at a different time, I probably would think something different. Most likely I would not be me if I lived at a different time, you know? And so like that, that helps a little bit, take the pressure off. It's still just, I'm still struggling with like my deconstruction, I just can't believe how fucking long it's lasting. But like, you know, I still get feel weird at some of the mm-hmm. traditional language, you know, that that comes up like in a church service, for instance, around this stuff. And it's like, OK, I guess I still have more work to do. God, this is frustrating, but <laughs> it doesn't seem to ever end. Um, anyway, we're out of time. So, Matt, I'm I'm very grateful you have agreed to to come on and do a patron episode we're going to continue. Um, we'll, we'll do, we'll get through more of these questions that we didn't get through today because of my, uh, I don't know, my compulsion to spar with you 
Uh, not spar, but like, you know, yeah. I don't know, practice and throw a bunch of my own ideas out to see what you think, because that is my right as a host of a podcast and an insufferable white male. Um, but so some of these questions that we might get into here are Matthew 27, the the bodies coming out of their graves, which I mentioned, different forms of Christianity in the early years. So early Christianities, John's gospel, revelation, a little more eschatology, Maybe the David, David Bentley Hart New Testament translation, study Bibles, all that kind of thing. Actually, let me ask you this one question for, for listeners, because this is a resource thing. Are there New Testament commentaries or a commentary series that you most recommend? The short answer is no. The slightly longer answer is, I mean, I usually think of, I take commentaries author by author rather than series by series because any, any series can be a bit spotty. Okay. Are there a few authors you like? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, actually, here, I'll make this offer to your listeners. You, you can email me with a biblical book, and I'll tell you who I would read on that, uh, oh, on that wow. particular book. Okay. Uh, I, yes, I don't mind that at all. I, I feel those kind of requests sometimes. I mean, there are a couple of pretty reliably good series, but, th- but they all have different audiences. So, I mean, my... F- the most consistently good ones that I use are the Anchor Bible and Hermeneia, but those are really quite technical ones, um, yeah. like lots of Greek, but that's because I work on the Greek New Testament. They're all mm-hmm. written in English, so you know any English reader can read them, but some people would say, oh, those are a bit dense, which is the reason I like them. Yeah. I mean, pretty reliably good are a number of, and pretty reliably good and not so sort of heavily technical are some series like the New Testament Library from Westminster John Knox, the Interpretation series, which is also Westminster John Knox, I think, the Abingdon series, which is published by Abingdon. Um, so these are sort of aimed more at sort of lay people or maybe pastors. Yeah. Or cool. That's a short answer. But if 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 someone wants to know who's really good on First Thessalonians or John, I really email don't you an email, and I can I can tell you who I would read. All right, let's show let's show Matt just how many of us love the Bible. <laughs> Fill up that inbox. That's right. No, I'm That's right. protest. No, okay, Matt. Wow, uh, we got through, frankly, a lot fewer questions than I had hoped, but it's because we got into some really interesting stuff. So I'm very grateful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dan. That's good. 